Hey everyone, welcome back to the It's a Mind Game podcast. My name is Jade and today I'm so excited to be bringing back the wonderful Jacqueline known as Wings and Quill. We have had some deep, intense conversations around eating disorders and how beautifully they can sort of weave their way through our minds and how we can so beautifully weave them back out as well. But without further ado, welcome back Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having me back Jade. It's so exciting to have our first conversation of the year. I've missed you. I've missed talking to you and and having these opportunities to unpack all aspects of disordered eating and HA experiences. I certainly look forward to every single conversation we have. And as soon as one finishes, I'm longing for the next. So I'm going to make the most of this time we have now. Um, now, we have sort of a running list of ED conversations that we want to talk about but the one that kind of like shunned the most bright today was how to keep safe in recovery while living in a disordered eating world. Now before we dive in could you break down what that means? I would love to yes. I think one of the very difficult things about HA recovery and eating disorder recovery, disordered eating recovery is that we're attempting to recover something within an environment that is quite toxic in itself, quite disordered in itself, which positions us differently to recovering from something that might be quite an isolated experience in an an environment that isn't very relatable, which isn't necessarily um, harder or easier, but it takes different resources. It takes being differently supported internally and externally. I sometimes say that being going into recovery is a little bit like leaving a cult in terms of the diet culture that we're around, meaning that we're so indoctrinated with these ideas from the beginning of our lives, it's in our culture, it's in our families, to different strengths and severities depending on the circumstances we get but it's very, very intense for most of us. And it's often a big part of our identity, our family identity, our roles. So when we start to appreciate that this is part of what's contributing to us becoming sick, we're difficultly positioned in feeling then like we might need to behave differently, organize our life differently within a society that might not be ready to receive that or is resistant to that and mm-hmm. is encouraging us actually to go back to behaviours that might have made us unwell. But I think it's really important to talk about the reality of actually becoming recovered and staying recovered in a world that might have you do differently. Mm, I, I like the description of how it feels almost like a cult because I feel hand in hand with that when we start to recognise all of the things we've been told have led us down a path of actually being unwell there's also a distrust that comes with that because it's like I so willingly went into making these decisions thinking it would be best for me and now I'm left in a position where I'm lost, I'm confused, I don't know who to trust, I am losing myself and it's kind of like almost like a feeling of drowning but then when we pop our head afloat to find what to clutch onto, um, it can be quite I guess, disorientating because there's so many mixed messages on what to do in order to be quote unquote healthy and what you look like to be quote unquote healthy. And I guess anyone who's listening to this saying like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Like I know I need to be better than what I am, but at the same time now I don't know who to believe. 
I don't know who to trust and I don't know who to be a positive influence, let's say, on me anymore. What can be a guidance to get that motivation to, I guess, have a little bit of faith in the first steps forward? It's maybe not the news that we want to hear, but I think that description of the, the chaos of feeling all shaken up and disoriented is crucial for a longer-term, stronger self-identity to be possible. If it's too much of a quick fix of I'll just, I'll just substitute this guru instead of the old one or this like template for health or well-being or even spirituality, if any anything that doesn't require a deeper diving into yourself, which there's no short tracking, then we're probably just setting ourselves up for a similar experience and different outfit. I think the the cult term is really fitting because it is that, you know, I, I that struck me when I was watching a documentary on people that left um, cults and how they came to a tipping point of knowing, I don't think this is the truth. I don't think this is how I want to spend the rest of my life. But there would almost always be a strong level of doubt of that maybe I'm the one that's getting it wrong. Maybe I'm the one that doesn't quite get it the way the others do. I'm not as loyal or as loyal or as devoted and once they had left they would often have periods of regretting that they did and mm. wish to go back sometimes they would go back and and repeatedly leave or stay and it just really struck me that it was so similar to the eating disorder experience the cult being the diet culture around us and the way families communities environments around us can reinforce that was that was the right way of thinking about it being smaller Mm -hmm. is really important putting so-called fitness and health above everything else is the right decision that was just being disciplined you were correct in understanding that Mm -hmm. it takes an enormous amount of discernment and for discernment we need a kernel of self-worth to be able to decide that that isn't the right fit for us and it isn't what we believe is going to be the best for our future but I think there has to be that period of discomfort of now I've like torn down the scaffolding of my internal world and my security and we hear Mm -hmm. the term coping mechanism like really that is often what it's been so without it we feel really exposed and raw Anita Johnson who wrote Eating in the Light of the Moon calls it the log in the lake it's like your use word Mm -hmm. drowning you're in this water body of water drowning you grab onto what you can grab onto and if that's an eating disorder or if it's something in substitute of an eating disorder the most important thing is to survive and then we can level up from there but being being aware of that is probably the first thing we grab isn't going to be the best thing for our long-term interest Mm, so I guess from it comes down to that awareness doesn't it it's like okay well I've been following life and living this particular path for so long now but now there's alarm bells whether my health is being affected socially I'm withdrawn or I feel like I'm at a disconnect with people around me that's super common that feeling of being a blank canvas it's like I present myself like I'm fun and I'm happy and I'm having a great time but I actually feel so bare like surely this can't be correct and as you said it's like that breaking down of reality to go well what I once thought was stable and the best path is actually not the stable path I want to go down. Do you feel like if someone's in that position, the 
I guess the best place is almost doing an audit on personal beliefs and perceptions and starting to navigate what it is that they internally feel is a direct path forward rather than, say, turning straight to friends or family members, which can often be uh, disordered in themselves. And I say that like because some people can have quite a disordered perception of food, but it's nothing that actually implicates their daily life. Um, You know, we've all witnessed that lunchtime debacle where everyone kind of eyes everybody off to be like, are we all doing salad today? Are we all doing burgers? Like, what are we doing here? And it's definitely led, like no one's just got this, oh, I'm having this, I'm having this. Everyone kind of follows the pack. And that is some form of disordered behaviour because everyone's trying to find out what's safe before they make a decision. But at the same token, you know, people aren't missing out on a social life because of this. They're not having severe anxiety as a result. It's a very diluted sort of disorder. But when you're in the midst of an eating disorder where every decision feels really difficult um, to then be in the position where it's like, oh, no, but I have to follow the pack, it can feel difficult to know what to do because it's, as you said, with that self-worth piece and the personal empowerment, it's like, well, if I'm going to advocate for myself, I know it's actually probably a good decision for me to have a burger today. Or perhaps, you know what, I'm not feeling that great. I'm just going to pick something that's a little bit safer today because I just want to have a good time with my friends and I'll prioritise working my food another time when perhaps I... I'm a bit more flexible on like, I guess the priority I've got with the connection because that can be quite the um, conundrum as well, isn't it? It's like, it's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to prioritize connection with friends and picking something safe so that you can get that versus feeling like you have to do everything at once. It's like, you have to challenge yourself with food. You have to enjoy the communication and then you have to just be okay with it and not go get upset. It, it's a lot. And it can, do you find, be, I guess, a bit of a delicate dance at the start Mm. to be like, "Mm, you know what, connection's a good thing for me today and perhaps a challenge is a good thing for me tomorrow. That's really important to highlight, Jade, because as we become aware of what diet culture is, and one thing I would recommend is counter-saturations, like where we're influenced so strongly just by proxy to diet culture. It's important to consciously cultivate alternate messaging that sits right with you so that you're having some sort of other voice in addition to therapy coaching that you might be getting. You're having some kind of community and online resources can be amazing for this because you can connect with people all over the world that are on a similar journey But it's disillusioning when we start to realise. I remember understanding what diet culture was and opening my eyes up to every TV ad, every conversation Mm -hmm. I came across in the work um, lunchrooms and on the bus, the people talking. Glass shattering. Yes, and it was like this is everywhere. And and that that can be demotivating in some ways. You could take it in that direction because... It's almost like, what hope do we have? But Carolyn Coston said that people with eating disorders are the canaries in the coal mine where the the members of society that will represent the the toxins that are impacting everybody, but only some of us get sick. Like Mm -hmm. um, after nuclear warfare, some people will present more so with the biological impacts of that than other bodies just because they're they're genetically predisposed. Mm -hmm. A similar idea being 
just because only some of us get sick doesn't mean it's not hurting all of us. Like mm-hmm. it's more obvious for, for some people that um, like the first to show the symptoms of it or the first to take the hit. But extending that analogy, it's then asking us to, once that coal mine has killed the canary, we then have to try and exist in that same coal mine. And if we're not going to go and live on a mountaintop and isolate ourselves completely and just just go off grid and not be part of society, then we have to find a way of living amongst messaging that we now know is harmful. And that can be isolating. It can be frustrating because things that seem so innocent, those throwaway comments, those magazine headlines, we can understand for the, the full impact they can have. And it can be isolating if you then feel like you can't partake in conversation with like chit chat about body criticism or things again like the workroom conversation that will happen so often if you go and eat by yourself so you don't have to partake in that it creates a lot of situations that can feel really isolating and as you highlighted that's not good for our mental health either mm-hmm. I think having a, a manifesto for this stage of recovery that you're at can be useful because trying to trying to do it all at once could lead to recovery burnout trying to change the world trying to advocate for everyone trying to educate all your friends and and colleagues and be a perfect role model is too overwhelming Mm -hmm. and the psyche has this incredible function of not letting us be privy to information that we don't have capacity to process it's how we protect ourselves So most people that go through recovery of any kind or trauma healing or integrating of an experience that they weren't ready to at the time will experience layers of that so that they differently understand it looking back in two years than they do right now. Mm. They'll differently understand it again in five years and 10 years and so on. It's almost like we get to a, a point where the data has been collated and our brain says, all right, you can release the next lot of information I've got space to to work with that now and knowing that I think pacing yourself in how you understand what to do the best to go forward what your new philosophy is can be useful because like we want to fast track it we want to get to the answer now and just this is now the way I'll always be for the rest of my life now I do have the answer and this is the answer part of recovery and for that personality type that's more susceptible as well I think is is giving yourself permission to be in the nuance of this very gray area between uh, being unwell and being in a really liberated place and just letting yourself pay attention and discover what your intuition is, build on strengthening that, discover what your beliefs are, build on strengthening that, but not expecting that clarity particularly quickly. And again, it being so could actually be um, more problematic than not. That can be quite a confusing part of the initial stages of recovery, though. Um, and I say this as personal experience in other women, it's actually come up a bit in like private discussions, which is that idea that you've got awareness now, you've got confidence on a path forward. Okay, so you're not trying to be perfect but you're going to say yes to lunch. You're going to eat a little bit more at dinner. If someone offers pizza, you'll have the pizza. Like small things that you feel confident to execute, but without this whole overhaul of I'm going to change my life tomorrow. We're just accepting these little things. But then 
I know it can be quite confusing because we start to set a standard of if I make a particular decision to eat something out of my previous normal, good job, well done. And if I eat anything that is safe, I don't care about recovery anymore and I'm disordered. And it can be really conflicting when you're trying really hard to say yes to new like food opportunities, let's call it that, and you're trying to open yourself to more social engagements and, and lead a different life, but then also be confronted with this idea that what happens if I just feel like a salad and it's not because I'm afraid to eat anything else and it's not because um, it's the lowest calorie meal, it's like... Uh, so let's say me personally, I love, I'm a sucker for calamari salad. I'll never cook it myself because I always overcook calamari. But if I go to, a, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. But I remember at multiple times being like, no, 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 but you should be picking like the calorie dense meal. But I'd be like, no, but I, I really just like the salad. No, but you're doing it because, and I would have this really conflicting internal dialect that was really confusing. And honestly, my decision at the end of it would would go both ways. I could never say it went one way or the other. But either way, I felt like I'd failed because if I chose the more challenging food, it's not actually what I wanted, so I felt disappointed. And if I chose what I actually felt like, I felt like I wasn't putting my recovery first. And and it, it kind of bleeds into that diet culture element because it's like, but if you're choosing healthy food, you must be on a diet. And if you're choosing not so healthy then clearly you don't care about your body and it's almost that that criteria makes everything so much more extreme than what it needs to be rather than just having like an ebb and flow of choice because I know that's something I talk to my ladies a lot about it's like we're not trying to be perfect eaters and we're not trying to be uh eaters who don't care about we just want choice to make confident decisions. What's your take on that when women are trying to, or men, um, they're trying to navigate this realm of challenging, incorporating, confidently choosing, but then feeling like they're putting themselves in a box, maybe they're prioritising recovery or prioritising their disorder, when sometimes it's actually not a disordered choice. It's just I'm being intuitive and I feel like this like this healthy food, but it's a diet. I'm going to stop because I can waffle on for it for a bit because that's what it feels like in your head. It's just this whirlwind. And in time, you can very quickly get out of it. But at the start, it's very tricky. It's incredibly confusing. I think it's, it's brilliant that this has come up because it's so relatable for so many people. You're exactly right. Like the the marketing of what is healthy food or what is not healthy food and the moralizing of that, therefore you're this kind of person or you have these sorts of values is so indoctrinated in us that even when we're trying to practice intuitive eating, it's, it's pretty much impossible to divorce our thoughts from what we think we feel like. So it's a very, it's, it's a very confusing process and that's something I could speak about um, for days, <laughs> but I think the, the example you give is very is very apt because a lot of the intuitive eating research is done on young children, on toddlers, and we find that children that are about the age of two, which developmentally they're not able to process social pressures and ideals yet, so they 
as far as we know, haven't yet absorbed strong ideas about diet culture, even if they're fairly exposed to them. If they are presented with a variety of food, they will choose the foods that over a two-week period do meet the, the nutritional profile of what a two-year-old needs to have. Um, and interestingly, they won't, they usually won't get a lot of variety on a given day, but they'll over the two-week period, which is the amount of time, fascinatingly, that a lot of the minerals and vitamins our bodies require remain bioavailable so that they they feel like they you know, crave carbohydrates and just carbs all day on one day and the next day it's all fruit and the next day it's all protein. I'm not quite that simple, but it might look something like that um, where we're trying to influence them to you know have a balance of everything at each meal or you know, he hasn't had any fruit today or she hasn't had any protein today. Left to their own devices, they tend to seek that out. And they do choose vegetables, they do choose fruit. It's It's our diet culture that has decided that is good therefore often fairly unappealing and the foods that are naughty so-called like treats and indulgences and the naughty foods are what we end up wanting because they wouldn't have permission to have them so we then assume 10 years on 20 years on 30 years on that if we were really listening to our body and I hear people say this all the time if I just ate intuitively I just never stop eating chocolate I just eat I just eat cake all day and you know maybe we would at first but our body probably doesn't want only one food or only one category of food. Sometimes it probably would crave an alternative um, just so it can thrive, so it has access to everything that it needs. So if we demonize a food group, even from that like anti-eating disorder schema, that can be the flip side of a, um, a similar process. I did want to say, though, I think it's very common for most people in their recovery almost to have a bit of a catch-up for all the things that we didn't let ourselves eat or there might be a lot of nostalgia, like I want to go back and have that thing my grandma used to make. I want to go back and have, go back to those restaurants with the friends, all those times I missed out and now I want to go back and have the things. And for a period of time, we might feel allergic to salad if that's something we overdosed on for a while. But that would come into balance once we've really moved into an intuitive eating space. I, I love, I really appreciate what you're highlighting as well, that recovery is multifaceted and it can't be determined just by just by what we're eating, that of equal value is socializing, of equal value is emotional connection and support. So it would genuinely sometimes be the priority over food, as you say, if it needs to be kept simpler one day so that connecting socially is possible that is an equally valid choice in light of recovery. And ironically, making it about the food is also quite uh, from diet culture. It's it's really an idea from diet culture that then recovering from eating disorder is just about eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see how quickly they kind of like flip the switch on each other. And I guess the other idea that popped in my head when you said about prioritising connection as well, it's like if you're looking at it from broad picture like a weekly view you're allowed to take a rest day you know and if your rest day is let's say it's a whole family outing day trip kind of deal and it just feels better to you to go to some more comfortable foods just so that you can enjoy the whole day out it's okay to take a step and I'm not even calling it a step back actually I'm going to track that before I say it's okay to just like play safe for a day and then go again Because like you said, if you try and go hard at it from the start, 
one, you can get exhausted from the process. And two, it kind of, it takes time for your brain to catch up with these new decisions. And I know so many women experience this um, motivation, let's say, for three, four, five days where they're like, I'm just saying yes to everything. I'm eating whatever I want and it's great and I love it. And they're on this crazy emotional high because they're living in this element of freedom that they've never experienced. And then they'll wake up one morning and they, they kind of feel paralyzed again. I don't want to do it today. And I don't, I don't, I, I don't feel excited about it. I don't feel motivated about it. My stomach feels different. Like I, this is very strange. And it's like, well, on the cellular level, that's when everything's trying to kind of change in our brain and it needs some time to process what has just happened. And that isn't a sign that you're not destined to recover. It's just a sign that your, your brain and your body needs some catch-up time and to kind of go through, oh, okay, so we're saying yes to these things. Okay, yep, all right. Oh, we're resting a little bit more. Okay, all right, let's do that. And there's, there is a transition period and just that, that intense emotion of crazy high and then if you feel a drop, it's, it's not a trigger for you to go see, I can't do it. Perhaps it could more so mean a different strategy is required so that the longevity of it remains or it could be um you know a different kind of intervention so that you can kind of pause for a little bit before you go at it again if you had someone coming to you Jacqueline being like Jacqueline like I saw you last week and then I went and I did this and I did this and I did this and and now I just don't want to do anything I want my old life back I just I don't want it I don't like it what's your suggestion or way of sort of navigating that emotion if we if we're too hard on that part that is resistant, it usually digs its heels in. The, the thing about resistance is that trying to bulldoze it away uh, is usually not very effective. And I actually have a huge amount of respect for the resistant parts in our psyche that even if objectively, logically, they're not helping us, on a subconscious level, somewhere in our psyche, they're doing something that might be very important and they are protecting us from overriding our readiness point. And again, our psyche will protect us from what we're not ready to process or do yet. So maybe that was enough. Like you've met your threshold of growth and challenge for the week in those five days of going for it and it needs time to integrate before there can be another push towards change. So being really caring of the different aspects of you. Narrative therapy has some beautiful ways of languaging that, like understanding those parts as different stories or sometimes I think about them as like different children and I'm the preschool mm. teacher and I've got all these different personalities that um, some are kind of easier to look after and to, to work with and negotiate with than others, but they all deserve care and I'm responsible for all of them. They're all in my duty of care. So when the trickier ones, um, the higher needs ones, are playing up and being demanding, like I have to just get on their level and chat to them and attend to them as well. I can't just um, have the teacher's favourites, the, the <laughs> teacher's pets that I always turn to because just like a classroom, if we treat our own mental health in that way, the, there's an expression that I think is very true that the children in need of the most love are the most difficult to love. and I think if we if we use that as an analogy as well within our internal selves, that the parts that we find hardest within ourselves to accept and love are the parts desperately most needing it. And mm -hmm. the parts we're probably going to get the most transformation 
if we can meet, if we can just simply hold and meet and not force change and not talk them out of that thinking and not tell them they're wrong, but just meet and attend and be willing to see it from their perspective a little bit. So I think being really moving into that role of seeing yourself as the mother of your internal world and the mother of all the different parts of yourself and the influence we get to have in our life are the narratives that we choose to give more oxygen to and, and strengthen. So we attend to all of them, but we also get to put on centre stage. That's the authorship of our life. That's the design that we get in creating the masterpiece of our life. And so that's where we could say, like, I'm going to give a little bit more of the script to like this one over here that does seem to be serving us well, who does feel like she wants to seek out change and do that in our best interest. But it doesn't mean that you over here, little one that's struggling, doesn't exist or I'm going to ignore you or deny that you're here. But almost finding a way to work collaboratively with those different parts of self. Again, very much like managing a classroom or a family. Yeah, I love that analogy and it's and the use of the word negotiation because I feel like the biggest, I guess, help with getting through an eating disorder is learning to negotiate with that eating disorder voice because it does have its own personality, it does have its own character and especially at the start, the more you try and change it, the louder it screams. And we can sometimes take that again as a sign of like this isn't for me, like clearly, but it's, as you said, the heels dig in when there's a threat and sometimes despite it feeling quite confronting it's often a very good sign that you're leading your your brain out of one way of thought and into the next which is so positive um but just that idea of the different personalities and I guess leading it into that sort of diet culture non-diet culture and finding your way it's like even if you were to say each of those are the school children it's like sometimes you you will entertain diet culture sometimes you will choose the diet food and then other days you won't and just because your choices can fall into a selection of a category doesn't mean you are the selection of the category or that your values are placed there but I guess in knowing that even if your brain tries to pop you in a box let's say, that it's up to you to have that negotiation of, no, it's my choice to do this today. It doesn't mean it's a reflection of who I am or what I do or what I believe in. Instead, it's just a decision on what's going to benefit me most today, knowing that that will change every day. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Um. I guess because we ran out of time so quickly, I would love to actually continue this conversation with you because I feel like there's so much in learning how to navigate this idea of I kind of know the life that I am living that I no longer want to, but I still have this idea that I, I want to be healthy so I don't want to go completely against it because that's not who I am, which is so reasonable, right? Like at the end of the day, we all want to lead happy, healthy lives. And sometimes that can feel quite chaotic too. It's like, but if I'm still health conscious, does that mean I'm disordered? Because I'm technically, you know, eating healthy for most is like, oh, you're on a diet, you're on a diet. And it's like, no, I just prioritize health. But the active commentary from other people being like, oh, she had the salad or oh, she had this or she had that, it can it can create a few walls that we don't necessarily need. So perhaps next time we can open up the conversation between 
learning how to, I guess, walk away from the pressure of feeling like we need to be in one category or the other and knowing that, I guess, being intuitive means you're kind of both. Exactly. Yes, and it's values-led. I would love to talk about that with you more. I think that's a very important conversation to have on the back of what we've addressed today. Wonderful. I cannot wait to dive deeper into this conversation, Jacqueline. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. I will leave all of your contact details in the show notes. And ladies, I hope you've absolutely enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. And I can't wait for you to join us on the next one. Bye for now.